Welcome to Lucky Episode 13 of Super Entertainment Presents the Television Crossover Universe on the Grand Guignol Network. Coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew, this episode is sponsored by James Boyachuk. Joining me in the studio is Ivan Shablowski, convention panelist and lover of cheese, and via Skype is James Boyachuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions, and Chris Nigro, author and founder of Wild Hunt Publishing. And I am Robert Ronsky Jr., author of the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia. We are the TVCU crew. TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots to official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the Telgen Crossover Universe. So, welcome, everybody. Hi. So. Hello. All right. That's all the time you guys get to talk. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Well, let's, um, let's move into our shameless plugging segments. Um, Chris, we'll start with you. What do you have for us to shamelessly plug? Well, I'm going to reiterate that my own publishing label, Wild Hunt Productions, well, Wild Hunt Press, that is, is soon going to be launching its first books, including Replicant novella, two superhero novels that will be part of a shared universe that will be Centurion, uh, Dark Origins, that's a cool subtitle, and Moonstalker, A Night in Buffalo. And yes, I do mean Dark Knight type of night. And I'm also hoping to get uh, an anthology that includes a novella that I've done out at the same time. And I'm also happy to, hoping to include some stories of a previously published character called Scytharn, which is a Barzumian warrior, actually policeman warrior, on Earth. So like a, a Martian Manhunter, but with a, um ERB type of spin. But, yep, and think red instead of green. Mm-hmm. Kevin Heim told me that you were going to get him to write a story for that anthology. Is that right? I'm going to get him to write a story for some anthology I do if it kills me. Okay, because he said something about doing a superhero story for some collaboration with you. I have several such ideas that I've come to him about, including, you know, he's had a lot to do with helping me formulate that shared superhero universe I'm working on. I'm definitely soliciting him for a Dorian Gray story for the anthology that I hope to come out with in the future is in the planning stages, and I'm also hoping to turn my website, The Warrenverse, into a book, you know, describing the shared universe once published by Warren Comics, and considering Curse of the Werewolf was one of the series, and considering Ivan is the greatest expert on lycanthropy... Well, thanks, your doctor. Yeah, that I know... I am definitely going to solicit an article from him for that about that series at gunpoint if necessary. You know, this Kevin guy seems pretty popular. Well, he was talking about this Ivan guy who's sitting here in front of a microphone right now. That guy sounds longer. way cooler, though. Yeah, I think so. Ivan. You know, Kevin's hitting the sauce, actually. I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who uh, heard it from another um, that uh, somebody wanted me to write and... Uh, 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 Dorian Gray chronology to go with that Dorian Gray anthology, um, but I haven't been actually asked yet, so that could be just a wild rumor. I bet your mailman started it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that or Lindsay Lohan. Um, by the way, that's Wild Hunt Press. Is is the name of your publisher? That is totally correct. So that I say it next time correctly. 
next time I mean in two weeks because I'm not going to retype it into the to the next one. So I'm going to read whatever I wrote. So <laughs> is this the right place to admit I have a crush on Lindsay Lohan? Sure, no, why not? Sure, why not? I have a crush on Lindsay Lohan, people. It's okay. No one will think any less of you than they already do. That's a very shameful plug. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's one of the advantages of being so disliked. You can't go any lower. And on that note, how about you, James? What do you got? (laughs) Just today, actually, we released Those Who Live Long Forgotten Volume 2, a story where fairy tale characters, mythological figures, ancient gods, and fictional characters from at least 100 years ago have new stories written about them where these characters are summarily thrust into the present and forced to deal with our awful modern world. Now, the main reason people listening to this show are going to want to pick it up is Roe McNulty's story, Resurgence, which deals with Dracula's history from Roman times, shockingly, up through the present, including what Dracula was up to during World War II. It is not to be missed. As well as other absolutely fantastic stories, such as one dealing with the American mythological figure, Alfred Stormalong Bulltop, the giant who put out the Great Boston Fire with his ship full of water and was somewhere around 200 feet tall. Lots of really fun stories in that one. And, of course, I will remind people the Dragonlord's Secretary is still available, and it is still just as fun with all of the dragons and southern bells you could possibly want. And then just to throw out a pitch for something that I'm not involved with, I recently got a copy of April Moon Publishing's anthology Spawn of the Ripper, which actually has nothing to do with the Ripper, and it's a book where every story tries to recreate the feel and tone of a Hammer Horror movie. And it's really delightful. It has a royal occultist story that copies those wonderful mid-50s horror anthology movies. And there are crossovers everywhere, of course, like with a Frankenstein story that's a prequel to the Hammer Frankenstein, dealing with Frankenstein's master's attempts to do revivification, but with mummies. Mm. It's a very fun book. Now, uh, Roe McNulty, uh, he's the one who wrote that Carmilla story that I'm in love with, right? Yep. Yeah. And now, will this, this like the previous anthology, have original stories and then have reprints of classic stories that tie into the new stories? It does not, because quite a few of our authors decided this time to do characters that don't really have a source text. Mm. Like or Alfred a usable Storm- one. To a degree, yeah. it's more like one ca- guy used a story with Sir Nunos, the mm-hmm. Celtic the supposed Celtic god of the Wild Hunt, except there's not actually any stories about him, and mm-hmm. there's just part of a name on a Roman statue that maybe is this guy. He's just basically a whole filled-in Celtic mythology that probably didn't exist. Fair enough. Similarly, there's no story about Alfred Stormalong Bulltop, right. because he was more of a verbal character, and mm-hmm. none of his stories really survived outside of a few notes in different folklore collections. Gotcha. Like, half of our collection actually doesn't have a source text. Right, right. It was... It's fascinating because of all the things I expected, I never expected. We have no stories to reprint. <laughs> <laughs> that still sounds uh, like uh, something I'm going to add to my collection. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Any chance there's a, at least a mention of Karnacki in this one? Because we can't have a show without <laughs> Karnacki. You know what? No one did. They failed us. They completely failed us. Well, this one was more about um, like legends and like myths and stuff like that right so 
I mean, right. Karnacki's. But more. then again, there is Dracula in right. this volume right. and Carmilla in volume one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I consider Dracula to be a mythological figure, even though he comes from literature, just because he's just been used so much. Yeah, but there's That's Frankenstein. True. You did say Frankenstein was in this one, right? No, he is in the Hammer Horror book that I had nothing <gasps> oh, to do with. Oh, right, right, story. right. Okay. Well, they become so iconic, Dracula and the Frankenstein monster, I concur, that they have basically become more or less modern myths. I mean, look what they mean to so many people. Look at the themes that they resonate. Isn't that what mythology basically is? Well, Frankenstein is in Once Upon a Time, so... It's true. Well, not Once Upon a Time, but Once Upon a Publication, yes, and I... I just think it's more modern mythology, and I think it's way cool because the themes basically are as important now as they were then. And basically, I always saw mythological characters as personified themes and ideas. And am I making sense, James? Well, well sure. <laughs> I actually meant the television show Once Upon a Time that adapts fairy tale characters has also adapted Frankenstein uh, Oy, okay, as part of that, that universe. So they consider him a fairy tale character. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, he certainly does resemble a lot of handsome princes I've seen, so yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, Ivan, been into any kids' birthday parties lately? Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Did you I play d- the clown? I did go to a party, but it was not a child's party. As I, a Ghostbuster? or As a Ghostbuster. I right. went to uh, the Fun Spot mm-hmm. up in Laconia, New Hampshire. First time I've been there. The world's largest arcade. Oh, wow. As a Ghostbuster. Yeah, that's awesome. Does it add up to Chuck E. Cheese? Uh, it's quite a bit larger than your typical Chuck E. Cheese. They do serve pizza there. They also have a bowling alley. They have miniature golf. They have go-karts when it's in season, which, you know, right now it's right, not. Right, right. No but, dancing animatronic animals? Chuck E. Cheese has that. Yes, Chuck E. Cheese has dancing animatronic animals. This, this was not Five Nights at Freddy's, so no, sadly we didn't get that. <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese also has a satanic cult in the basement of some of their stores. But... Okay. You can't prove that. <laughs> it was on Facebook. Well, So that's really all I've got, although right. I did recently find Waldo, so I'm very proud of that. Oh, nice. Yeah. I actually have a picture of Waldo in Northampton. That I'm very very pleased with. He, I was just sitting on a bench. I took his picture quickly because I'm like, oh my god, I found him. Posted on Facebook. Here he is. <laughs> the legends are true. <laughs> there should be a Waldo story in there since he's become a legend. I mean, you spot him and what, what, what's the picture? You spot him and you get an award of some kind, like maybe a free cheeseburger or something, what, or a pot of gold or what? Um, no, just... no, he's not a leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe the leprechaun is giving out the, you know, giving out the prize. I don't know. It could so be the that. leprechaun is giving out Waldo for you to get a prize. Right. Well, who else is giving out the Got prizes it. in the legend? You've got to put fantasy elements in there. Why not a leprechaun? Okay, how about a brownie? Is that better? And All right. Yes, brownies are definitely better. Or a bogart. I don't know. So I'm going to move this along because <laughs> I, I do have something to uh, plug also, and, I, I, uh, and, and then I want to, um, you know, actually talk to our guest. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I just want to mention, um, you know, I, I think we've already said on the show where I was the one where I was the, the, the guest that um, um, the second edition of the horror crossover encyclopedia is coming out. 
this year, unexpectedly, um, unexpectedly to me. Uh, <laughs> and um, um, we we had speculated on on who I was referring to um, to write the forward for the second edition because I hadn't actually asked him yet. It's not my mailman. What? Um, it's actually Dynamo Mars, um, who is a host of two other shows on this network, uh, the Grand Gignol Network. He uh, is on Trick or Treat Radio. And he is on the Elm Street Kids Movie Club. Um, he is really one of the reasons why we're doing the show right now. Um, you know, he read my book and gave it a rave review on Trick or Treat Radio, and they—he's the reason I got invited onto that show. And uh, yeah, so um, he knows a lot about horror, um, and he sleeps with my book apparently. So. Uh, <laughs> So I he, remember that. Yeah. So uh yeah, so he, um yeah, it really it really made sense. It really really re- made sense. Um and and while while I'm plugging Dynamo, um I've been binge listening to uh, Elm Street Kid Movie Club and um that is a great show. Um they review horror movies and horror-ish movies and um they're they really have this wonderful analysis of these movies, and usually Myers and uh, Stephanie Wiley don't agree, and that's wonderful too. That makes it even better. Um, they both have really good points. Um, you know, I just listened to their last episode. Al- they covered Alien and Aliens, and they had a few guests guests on to talk about it too. And it was like, you know, I've seen those movies, you know, thousands of times probably, and. Uh, uh, they just, you know, had such insight to it that made me like rethink the films, and I, you know, and uh, um, so they're really great, and uh, I, I would recommend recommend uh, listening to that podcast. If you can only listen to one podcast, listen to ours. If you, <laughs> if you can only listen to two podcasts, listen to Elm Street Movie <laughs> Kids Movie Club, and then three, and ours, and then yeah. three Trick or Treat Radio, and then four Unchained. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so we're going to go to a commercial, and when we come back, we will have our first returning guest, author Micah S. Harris, for part two of his interview. We'll be right back. All right, we are back. Uh, James, would you like to introduce our guest? It'd be my pleasure. Micah S. Harris is a guest who needs no introduction, especially if you've been listening to our show. We'll inflict one on you regardless. He's the author of a new Sorry, of a Pulp Arc New Pulp Award this year for Best Novel, Ravenwood, Return of the Dugpa, as well as many other short stories and a few other novels. Today, I'm going to resume with the question I almost asked last time. <laughs> if you heard me get Twin Peaks out of my mouth before Rob interrupted me, it's time to find out where that was going. Ouch. <laughs> now, Micah, one of the things you regularly return to in your fiction is Twin Peaks and its mythology. Would you like to talk a bit about how you discovered it, how it's influenced you, and the way it shows up in Return of the Dugpa? Well, yeah, sure. Um, I discovered Twin Peaks uh, when it was the hot new thing back in 1990, uh, when it was first running. And, uh, you know, I knew there was buzz about it. Uh, had no idea what it was going to, you know, turn into or open up into as it revealed itself. Uh, I did take the first episode and just sort of looked at it and thought, you know, oh, what is this? You know, I mean, I don't know if I want to watch this. And a friend of mine said, yeah, it's depressing. 
know, and that was the feeling because you know everybody's hearing Laura's dead, and you know it's just it's kind of a rough, uh, rough opening there. Uh, but for some reason, oh, I know what it was. I I, I, start, I heard about the uh, the dancing dwarf a bit mm. uh, in the third episode, so I had to go back. And uh, maybe I'd been taping it regardless. You know, these were the days of VHS. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from there on, I became very interested in it and uh, a fan. And uh, it quickly became my all-time favorite TV show. Uh, the second season, uh, where it lost a lot of viewers, uh, for me, it was just getting better. Uh, it was just it was like you were slowly emerging into this, uh, you know, this world and uh you didn't quite know exactly what was going on and uh but in an intriguing way not in a confusing way and by the time you know they were talking about things like well I was already in as a fan even before they got into the black lodge and those mm-hmm. sort of things um but that uh you know became very interesting to me uh the whole uh, black lodge white lodge uh, thing they had going and things like the dweller on the threshold, which you know is a super cool little phrase, you know, to to have um, in your lexicon. Uh, you know, throw it out at parties anytime, see what happens. You know? But uh, it's uh, it's uh, it was just fascinating stuff. And then uh, at the time too, there was a magazine being published called Wrapped in Plastic, and uh, those guys were you know David Lynch and Twin Peaks scholars. Uh, I didn't start that did not start coming out until after the show was over but they uh quickly uh you know became rather popular uh this is still back in the print days you know pre you had the internet but you didn't have digital books and all that sort of stuff and they put out an impressive uh, body of work in that magazine uh, and they interviewed you know people involved in it including uh, David Lynch and, and Cheryl Lee and Mark Frost, and uh, from those people you begin to learn something about the more uh, exoteric elements behind the story. They get theosophy and the ideas again of you know where the Black Lodge and White Lodge and Dweller on the Threshold uh, from you know from where do they originate? And um, you know these guys actually trailed down early on uh, that both lodges and Douglas. Uh, are mentioned in Talbot Mundy's The Devil's Guard. And uh, there, there's even a line of dialogue that uh, so nobody's ever actually pinned down who did it, but somebody basically lifted a line of dialogue from the Mundy novel and put it in Wyndham Earl's mouth and describing the Douglas. Uh, but it's a mystery as to which writer did that. And so uh, to me, you know, it was, just, it was just fascinating stuff. I guess, you know, for me, that show... It's a lot like what uh, Star Trek is for a lot of other people. Mm. Uh, I begin to, you know, see that in an odd way that it seemed to me to be having a closer relationship to reality uh, than I would have thought. And uh, so it was just, uh, you know, it's one of those things you, you know, you just feel like it was made for you, and you just fall in love with it. And so I'm writing about it, you know, 26 years later. Or you know, lifting concepts, or at least lifting the concepts that were previously lifted by Twin Peaks and reinterpreting mm-hmm. them. And of course, this novel, Return of Ravenwood, Return of the Dugpa, has been nominated for the Pulp Arc New Pulp Award. How does that feel? Uh-huh. How has this 
radically transformed your life? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> radically, uh, you know, uh, it's not uh, uh, perhaps not the term. I haven't quit my day job yet. Uh, you know, I'm uh, still riding on the side, and uh, but you know, it's just incredibly flattering. And you know, I want to thank whoever the kind soul or souls out there, if you're listening, whoever it was who nominated me. Uh, the book was did have a lot of work going into it in terms of the research and the different things it gets into, and uh, also it was a long time coming down the pike. And so, you know, to have the nomination was just uh, super. Uh, the last thing I was nominated for and won uh, was for our college university paper. We won the award for most improved comic strip, uh, which is like, well, what does that mean exactly? It means you, you know, started this... really, really bad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And now you fixed it or you made it better. Uh, but it was pretty crappy to start with. You guys had the most work to do and, you know. Uh, yeah, but uh, that award has never materialized. Uh, it was announced at a uh, at a banquet, and uh, I haven't seen it yet. That was probably like 1990, <laughs> So, uh, so you know, it's been like 26 years since I was nominated for something, and uh, and so I'm, I was just really flattering, and and I appreciate it. You know, I uh, I can certainly promote my book now, <laughs> you know, as being uh, nominated. Uh, even if I if I don't win, you know, nominated for the best novel, and hopefully that'll you know bring some new interest in the book, new readers around, and give it a boost. Uh, you know, I'd love to love to see that. I'm very proud of that book, and uh, I would like to you know have more uh, people discover it. And uh, you know, I have had thoughts of a for years now uh, of a, of a follow up to it. And, um, you know, I, I, it would be, I would try to, you know, make it something that uh, would come at you from a way that you're not expecting. You know, it would follow up on the story, but not, you know, directly, uh, or directly in a way that you would. I would uh, perhaps begin by addressing a, uh, the chapter title for Chapter 2, uh, The Fellowship of the Laughing Basilisk. Uh, you know, what is a laughing basilisk? Uh, well, you know, I didn't know. Uh, I just thought it sounded pretty cool uh, to have a fellowship like that and pretty pulpy. But now I have, uh, I have an idea about that. And uh, the basilisk, uh, who is a, is a guy, is a man, uh, would be the major antagonist in, in the sequel. Uh, he would be a... Uh, Joker, Phantomus type, uh, with a bit of uh, Renfield imprisoned in there, mm. uh, and from Stoker's novel. If you remember, uh, Renfield uh, basically worships Dracula uh, from his cell, and uh, so the the uh, Basilisk, who has been a you know pretty rough killer, leaving severed hands and you know cooked pet cats on people's tables and. Uh, just doing all kinds of horrific stuff in the Phantom of Style. Uh, he has now gotten religion. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's like, well, you know, what if, you know, Hannibal Lecter got religion or the Joker or Phantom has got religion? Mm-hmm. Um, but his faith is in an obscure uh, Aramaic deity, uh, Kettlehu. And, uh, you know, he, that 
that leads into something, something else. But it would be still about the search for Mel Galter, or Mel, and from the you know the villain from the previous book, and uh, trying to reach the remaining stone rings uh, before he does. Um, now, how much of it, you know, how he will actually appear when it happens? Uh, I hope I've come up with something good for that, but. Uh, it's possible that for you know a good bit of the narrative, his presence would be felt uh, like you might in a Fu Manchu story, you know, uh, than actually bringing him on on stage. Uh, but uh, at some point, you know, he would uh, uh, actually appear uh, in the yarn, and uh, I hope I can do that in a way that will uh, knock the reader on his or her behind. You know? Well, hopefully, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I would like to say, Micah, first of all, do by all means be proud of your improved, most improved comics book award from so long ago. Because, <laughs> okay. because going from bad to acceptable is a dream I've had for a long time. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaks, I aspire for mediocrity myself there. <laughs> but, but now going to awesome, I must say, it's not only an honor to meet you and to have you as a member of my Facebook groups. And it was also a great honor to read about Ghost Boy. And I must say, I I really enjoyed how you mixed, I, I should basically say, certain non-mainstream spiritual beliefs with political thriller. I mean, and, and as, as a hint of, of, uh, of what political, of real-life political situation the Ghost Boy alludes to, it was a situation where nuclear missiles almost fried our bacon. That's the hint. Uh-huh. And I should say the era that you captured of the Cold War was very well. And I like the idea that you have insightful thoughts, insightful themes and ideas. Like I should say, you make the reader question and ask questions. What is good and evil? Well, how is that better personified than a being like Malek Tau? Am I pronouncing that right, Micah? I I've never heard. Of, I always saw Malik Talis. I mean, that's what I've looked at on the internet and kind of got like Talis, almost like Dal, but Tal Malik Talis. But I'm the absolute worst for discerning an act, a correct pronunciation of well, looking I, at a word. When I was a kid, the uh, the sequel to the movie Ben. You guys remember Ben? Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, it was a sequel to the movie Willard. Uh, ben was the sequel, and uh, I remember reading the novelization of it, and uh, unfortunately it didn't come with lyrics from the Michael Jackson song included, <laughs> uh, but uh, it, uh, he had, Ben, the rat, had a general uh, named Socrates, and, uh, and my 12-year-old self, you know, read that as Socrates. Right, you know? like Bill and Ted. Yeah, so... <laughs> so it doesn't the uh and my brother even came up behind me trying to scare me by grabbing me and yelling Socrates. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't feel uh, it, Micah. If you know how I used to pronounce Philadelphia or think it was pronounced back then, I only found out the correct way when I f- was reading you know, remember how they used to make you read out loud in grammar school? Well I did that and made a total fool out of myself and yeah. And and hey, I just learned today I was pronouncing the word basilisk wrong all these years, and, and so don't fear in good company here. Your twelve year old self, anyway. And I must say, I was fascinated with M- M- Malik uh, Malik Ta- Malik Tawis. 
I think if I'm if I'm pronouncing that right. I mean, you made me totally realize that during the 1970s, the producers of NBC must have been Yazidis, and they snuck their deity in there, and it, it, as the symbol of the network. And I, I hope most listeners are not <laughs> young to understand what I'm talking about. That's, that's great. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, there is a sequel <laughs> in that story. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> an angelic peacock. I mean, it's, it's uh, Mayans may think they have a lock on a on a deity with some um, cool plumage, but they haven't seen Malekteus yet. And I think that's interesting because this deity is 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 it's monotheistic, but it's also a, a living duality, good and evil. Basically, rather than good and evil divided into two distinct beings, we have a synthesis. And I thought how how you played that in with it, and, and basically also the synthesis between scientific interpretations of psychic activity and how it intersects with magical interpretation. You did it all, Micah, and it was pretty amazing. And the how you tied it into the political. Uh, I, I should say that the political fiascos that were part and parcel of the Cold War, it was fascinating. Uh-huh. And I, I must say, I, I'm honored to get to read that, and I hope you have more planned for Ghost Boy in the future. Well, I thank you. I mean, I, I really appreciate uh, the compliments and that, you know, obviously you, you thought about it. You know, it, it provoked you to, to thought uh, and um, in contemplation, and that's you know, that's what I hope for. My favorite stuff that I enjoy usually has that effect on me, and I hope that inspire that in other people and, you know, increase your enjoyment uh, of the uh, of the experience. But as opposed to, you know, regarding to a, the synthesis of good and evil, uh, you know, remember that's Malik Tala's story. <laughs> Malik Tala's, uh, you know, can be a liar, you know. But... Uh, but that particular worldview works for him. Yeah, know. but that's okay. Chris can also be a liar. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> well, and now that we've had Chris's review, uh, Micah, could you give us a, a brief synopsis of what Ghost Boy is for the listeners? Yeah, Ghost Boy uh, is uh, came as or came out of uh, the publisher and editor at Airship Twenty Seven, Ron. For Tier, mm-hmm. uh, somebody had approached him at a con and it was wanting him to do a uh, Brain Boy stories. Okay, uh, you guys familiar with Brain Boy? I know Brain Boy. Yeah, yeah, it's a very only like four issues or so. Yeah, very yeah. obscure. Charlton, yeah. Charlton comics, comics, I think. Early sixties, or maybe Dell. Yeah, yeah and, mm-hmm. and a few years ago, uh, Dark Horse collected the entire run of four or five issues in hardback and. You know, it had these cool painted covers, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's one incredibly weird story in there about it's like invasion of the body snatchers, but it's it's at a resort in this lake. It's what's affecting everybody, and you know, Brain Boy sees these like woodsmen carrying a coffin through the forest, and it's just some crazy imagery. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Brain Boy apparently is still under copyright, and so. Uh, you know, Ron decides, well, you know, I'll create my own character. Uh, and he gives him a different, you know, origin story, which is done, uh, if you get the collection, uh, there's a comic uh, that opens the anthology and uh, that tells the origin of Ghost Boy, who actually 
uh, has his origins in a parallel universe, and I forget exactly how he enters ours. Um, there's some, I think there's some kind of strange impregnation going on there. Um, and, um, you know, he has these incredible psychic powers, even as a kid. And um, he comes under the auspices of the uh, U.S. government. And, um, the SOS. You know, they, he is, yes. <laughs> How do you like that? Yeah. Uh, he... Uh, you know, he's a young guy, teenager, you know, very much. They were wanting to, uh, you know, evoke the sense of early 60s Marvel comics. And, and uh, of course, the whole spy culture, pop culture, that was what was big when I was a kid. Uh, spies and, and outer space and Batman, the 66 Batman. You know, that was, that was the stuff. And uh, somewhere at one t- point, I wish I had them so much now, and I have no idea what happened to them except probably when we moved they were thrown in a pile for people to pick up what they wanted or thrown away i had these great this great camera that had the 007 logo and it opened up into a gun <laughs> you know and then i had a great radio part of the same set you know or or, or uh people who were producing it 007 logo opened up into a rifle uh and it was the coolest stuff uh, yeah, it's the kind of stuff that would make Congress, you know, start cracking bricks at the thought of uh, today. You know, how, how dare you unleash that upon our children uh, and, you know, turn them all into potential killers, I guess. But uh, they, uh, that, well, that was the big stuff. The man from Uncle was big and, uh, you know, spies were the thing and, uh, and astronauts and space and, and comics and, uh, so, you know, that, I was a little kid during that era, and uh, it's especially, you know, has some um, nostalgia, you know, to me uh, that time. And uh, so uh, that was the, you know, Ghost Boy had an appeal to me. Uh, the idea was to play him off as an actual lost comics character mm-hmm. uh, to sort of, you know, pull the, play a little uh, postmodern metafictional game there, you know, about this hero that was lost, and now you know he's been rediscovered. When in fact, you know, he was just you know created a few years ago. But it was a fun idea, and um, you know, he was a he was a fun character. And uh, actually, the plot for that story, not in all the specifics, but the basic idea, I'd been carrying around in my head for a long time, and I was going to do it with my own character. Uh, who I was envisioning as uh, Don Draper, you know, from, from mm-hmm. Mad Men. Yeah. And uh, but then when uh, uh, the you know the call for potential submissions to Ghost Boy went out, and I saw what the Malu was, I thought, well, you know, here's a place that I can actually put that that story, and um, and you know, write it, you know, with his cast and and uh, uh, shape it for an 18 year old boy and. Uh, originally, it had Doug presented again, but around this time, I discovered Yezidis, and so I decided to use them mm-hmm. as the bad guys. Uh, and of course, both Doug and Yezidis are are real, uh, or were. Uh, the Yezidis still are going on. Uh, they are unfortunately, you know, very, you know, horribly persecuted. Um, Thanks to Donna Zane was rounding up and killing them, you know. And uh, they are, but they are a real group, and, you know, they have a real peacock god. And um, just, you know, 
crazy stuff uh, in the world. One of the interesting things I saw in my research was the inside of an old church in France, and painted on the wall was, you know, Malus Taub. <laughs> it's like, what's that doing? You know, in a church in France from the Middle East, you know. Uh, it's probably Dan Brown's next novel, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but anyway, uh, did, did I answer your question? I, I hope I yes, did. Yes, I absolutely. So um, the, yeah. la- the last time you were on, um, you had told us a little bit about a fairy tale related project that you were doing, but you couldn't tell us much about it. Is there any chance we can pry some more information out of you? Yeah, definitely. Um, my uh, my collaborator on this uh, is the uh, comics artist. He works mostly in gaming now, uh, but comics artist Richard Case, uh, you know, who had a run with Grant Morrison on um, Doom Patrol back in the nineties. And, yeah, um, he told me this. Exciting. I was just stunned. I had actually yeah. just finished reading Doom Patrol for the first time, and then Micah tells me this. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's the, the next phase. And um, he, uh, you know, Richard's just a super nice, nice guy, and uh, was very open to it. I was, you know, very flattered that he, uh, uh, you know, with his resume, <laughs> you know, had the interest that he does does in it, and. Um, so, you know, we're a little behind on the pitch moving. He had another project, but that was fine because I'm still working on getting my mystery novel uh, in shape to get out. Would that and be uh, Mur- I, Murder in the Miracle Room? Yeah, Murder in the Miracle Room, yeah. And uh, so that's that's fine. But, uh, yeah, he. Uh, I'm really happy, you know, to be working with him, and uh, I'm enjoying these uh, character designs he's he's working out uh and uh I, I guess i can tell you that the, the main character will be a, a take on uh, red riding hood nice. uh but but uh, she of course is an uh, you know an adult uh a fetching young lady um but uh it's kind of a it's a parallel world to ours where uh, that in the Renaissance, uh, where they were actually trying out, according to C.S. Lewis, uh, both science and magic equally, uh, and then science was abandoned. Uh, I mean, was, magic was abandoned uh, because it didn't work to get you control over nature while science did. And so my premise was, well, what if you know magic had worked just like science? Mm-hmm. Uh, what if that had been part of the Renaissance? What kind of world would we live in today? And um, you know, it's it's a world with uh, uh, you know our takes on fairy tale characters, uh, which I think you'll see, we'll see will be quite different. Um, and um, there's a few things I, I think of again. I have a uh, uh, a hook or an idea that uh, no one's ever touched it before. So uh, it's kind of an odd place to be exploring this particular uh, hook. But uh, it's it's worked out pretty pretty nicely. Yeah, I like that diversion timeline view of yeah it. yeah yeah. And you'll see, you know, you'll see um, comic book, you know, not comic book, uh, fairy tale characters right. um, that you recognize, but with a you know a different uh, a different take on them. And uh, the and even uh, Merlin the magician appears early on, and uh, so does Rapunzel. Uh, these are this is part of the pitch pages that we have, 
and uh, red comes across them, and uh, it sort of, uh, you know, gets the story going uh, with what's happening there. And so hopefully those three pages and the character sketches and the plot I've worked up will be enough to convince some enterprising comic book company to, to publish it. Cool. And Murder Murder so. in the Miracle Room, which we just mentioned, is coming out soon too, right? Yeah, hopefully sooner than, than later. Uh, I'm looking over, I'm checking the corrections that uh, my uh, uh, digital pre-press guy uh, and guy that lays out my books and did the cover art for this, uh, Nate Pride, uh, I'm checking you know, the uh, PDF uh, against the corrections uh, that I marked in my text and, uh, you know, going through that to make sure that's polished up. And then hopefully, you know, after that, I mean, that's something I could do in an afternoon, uh, you know, but Mm -hmm. um, hopefully it won't be, you know, too much longer. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks it will be, it will be out and um, I'll be, you know, trying to promote it and, Actually, because it has the mystery angle to it, I'll be looking at some markets uh, or potential avenues of promotion that I've never had before. Um, there's the paranormal element in it, but uh, you know the mystery uh, genre and its fans will be a new audience for me, hopefully, and uh, hopefully they'll like it. All right, so we're we're coming close to the end of our interview time. Um, so, Chris, do you have one last question or comment? Yes, Micah, I definitely, in the future, want to see you tell the story of how your villain from Ghost Boy, Pantasserin, if you ever bring him back, how he and why he took over NBC during the 70s. That, there must be an awesome story behind that. Yeah, well, you know, uh, that, that's, that's rich source material you're offering me there. I have to, I have to say, um, but uh, you know, I, I, but my mind has has not really gone down that avenue, uh, but perhaps it should have. Uh, you know, it's the next decade, and um, so it'd be you know a logical uh, pickup with Ghost Boy and his crew all now in a '70s mode. You know, with too much hair and bad fashions. And free love. <laughs> Don't forget and free, the <laughs> yeah. And a veteran of yeah, the psychic actually, wars by then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's true. He's probably got into the uh, the counterculture movement. I don't know. Ghost Boy is pretty squeaky clean uh, for that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, the, I'm actually a, a fan of the, of the early 70s. Uh, there's a whole different vibe to it than the later 70s after the advent of disco. And in the early 70s, it was sort of an extension of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I have, I have good memories from that as a kid. And uh, the comics that were coming out, you know, the Marvel monster comics were coming out then that we knew. And, you know, a 10-year-old that liked monsters and liked comic books, you know, I was like manna from heaven. Uh, exciting and stuff. We have the Partridge family. And the par- Yeah, well, you know, well, there again, you know, uh, is it another incarnation of Malik Talis, the park? <laughs> you know, uh, were, were they on a rival network? You know, I could see, I could see an all-out war. You know, the ratings war. You know, going going on. But uh, no, uh, for some reason, you don't see the Partridge family so much. I don't. I mean, the 
I avoid them, so they might still be out there. I just can't tell because I wouldn't go anywhere near them if they were. (laughs) Don't forget that funky psychedelic bus they had that they drove around. That was Yazidis all the way. I'm telling you, there's an influence and crossover there. Well, you know, uh, there could be, but... uh... That might be a story you just have to unleash on the world, my friend. All right. Uh, you know, you can't... Uh... James, do you have a final question? Did we lose James? Did we lose James? Are you alive? Yes, I am alive. Did I you have a, sure. do you have <laughs> do a final question? I have a final question. You guys have done an admirable job okay. covering everything I wrote down. All right. <laughs> All right, um, so um, Micah, uh, before we let you go, um, do you want to uh, tell people once more where they can follow you on social media and find out where all your your stuff is to buy? Uh, well, the best way to find me is on uh, you know on Facebook, and um, I'm going to be you know uh, getting up an Amazon Authors uh, page uh, to coincide with Murder in the Miracle Room, and um, you know the stuff uh, is available uh, on Amazon. Uh, there is a um, uh, uh, the site that uh, Kablam, uh, the printer. Uh, you know, they, I don't know if you guys are familiar with them or not, but they printed the the Becky Sharp book. Mm-hmm. I did. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and their website has a store. Uh, Airship Twenty Seven is going through them now. So for printing, so their books and the ones with the stories I've written for them are available on their website. And I believe Barnes & Noble, um, uh, the Airship 27 stuff at least, is, is there. And uh, and then Airship 27 has its own you know website uh, where you can buy stuff. And it is, The Return of the Dugpa is an Airship 27 book. Uh, so that's where to, to find that. Um, other stuff that I've you know written is on Amazon. Um, I don't really ha- I don't have it on Barnes and Noble, uh, but uh, I still have my uh, collection and uh, the slashing toward Camelodunum is there, and still the frequency of fear, which also have you guys you guys read that that has Douglas in it too as well. Um, yeah, actually I did read that um, some some time ago when I was writing the horror crossover encyclopedia. I read that. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I did not recall that though. On my to read, I'm going to have to read it again because it is on my bookcase, my bookshelf. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's that's kind of um, uh, I, 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 that actually in a way ties in with the Ravenwood story mm-hmm. uh, and the migration of uh, of people across the land bridge from the east into the American continent, um, which is would be why you know about. Well, there's the Black Lodge, Dugpa, this, you know, uh, Indian, in the sense of India, <laughs> you know, backdrop or mythology. Uh, what's it doing in the American West? And, um, you know, well, they, they brought it with them, is my opinion, um, you know, when people from the Orient came over. And then in, and then in uh, the frequency of fear, uh, still some Native Americans, the Dequapa, uh, who... Uh, you know, have brought it with them to the East Coast, and uh, so I'm involved, of course, with the with the plants that feed on fear. And um, so, yeah, there's definitely that that does tie in uh, with uh, 
the other stuff and the major briggs actually appears in that story so that's even more of a connection cool well thank you thank you for joining us once more you know the first time you didn't know what you were getting into this time you came back knowing what you were getting into so Uh, it's your own fault (laughs) so uh yeah thank you very much um for joining us once more yes thank you very much and uh i appreciate i appreciate you guys you know having me again i'm flattered you know and best of luck receiving that most improved cartoon award (laughs) it's in the mail i'm sure (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it'll probably show up, you know, like love letter from some GI to his wife. You yeah, know, forty years from World War II, uh, and uh, you know, of course, that's the stuff that Nicholas Sparks novels are made of, isn't yeah. it? Uh, so <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think even he could work a, uh, you know, a, a most in- rival of a most improved comic strip award <laughs> twenty five years later into a romance, but, but. But who knows? By the way, have you guys ever seen a Safe Haven? Um, the the you, you probably avoided it with good calls. I mean, it's uh, you know it's Lifetime Channel material. Oh. Uh, but I went to see it because it has the uh, uh, the beautiful Julianne Huff in it. And uh, but that movie, believe it or not, comes across as a collaboration between Nicholas Sparks and M Night Shyamalan. <laughs> That's something I can't even fathom. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to watch it. Yeah, you got. Yeah, I'll just now see I'm it and see, it, and you'll see what I mean. Safe haven. Yeah, and believe me, Julianne in you know little you know blue jean shorts is worth the price of admission any day. Uh, uh, she's a doll baby, uh, but then, uh, like I say, the the story itself takes a you know a sort of uh, sixth sense kind of twist. Believe it or not, so that's my that's my you know movie recommend uh, for you know for what you should do when you should be reading Proust. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> but thanks a lot for having me, guys. Yeah. Uh, you know I'm, I'm listening to you every week, and oh, awesome. kind of feel like I'm hanging the out one. with you every week anyway. <laughs> Sorry about the problems like that in every show. <laughs> All right. So um, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to have our very first movie review, and we're going to have a special guest on our show, too, who's always here with us anyways. Um, so we'll be right back. All right. We are back. And um, so we're, we're doing something new today. Um, we're doing a movie review. And um, so I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit. Um, with with us in every episode, and and I've recently realized from uh, listening to all the other shows that I'm the, we're the only ones who don't actually acknowledge his being here, but he's always here keeping the show going. So, um, Johnny Wolfenstein, our network producer, would you like to talk a little bit about our little uh, review crossover event? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, and it's always a pleasure to hang out with you guys every other, every every episode that we record. So what we're doing here, we're doing a week-long crossover event. So this is kind of like back when you were a kid reading all those uh, comic books, and uh, it expand, you know, multiple issues or, or potentially every single issue uh, coming out for a specific company like DC or Marvel. So what we're doing is the Grand Guignol Horror Pack crossover event. We've teamed up with a company called Horror Pack, and they sent us their Horror Pack for February. And included in there were four films. So we have four shows on the network. We decided to divvy it up, and each show got got one film to review. And uh, so what we're going to do is the week 
of I think it's the seventh. Yep, it'll be March seventh. We'll start with Unchained. They're going to be reviewing a movie called El Chupacabra, which uh, sh- should be an interesting review. That sounds classy. Yes, exactly. I heard the rev- I heard the review from the other room. It was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, on Tuesday, uh, drops every Tuesday, the television crossover universe. You guys are just about to review right now a film called Dark Water, starring Jennifer Connelly. And on Trick or Treat Radio, we're going to be reviewing a film called The Dead Hate the Living. And because of schedule and the way that it works out, the Elm Street Kids Movie Club was unable to do a review this week, but uh, they're going to somehow some way get a review up and uh they are going to be doing a film called the invisible which was directed by david s goyer who i'm sure you guys are familiar with mm-hmm. comic book fans and yes. and comic book movie fans so that's what's going on the whole entire week every episode that comes out on the network will be reviewing one of the films we got in the horror pack and we're also going to be uh unveiling a an unboxing video so that's going to be available on the deadites youtube channel so it's the deadites tv if you want to go and find that you can see the unboxing video and watch along with uh, monster zero and dynamo mars and watch as they unpack the box and find out what's in it so i guess without any further ado i'm gonna pass it off to you guys so you can actually talk about the flick all right thanks johnny and so um ivan was our 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 Reviewer, he was the one with the the one DVD player that we pulled together. <laughs> I can watch movies at home. <laughs> so start us off what, uh, with with the movie. What, what was it about? Okay, well the the basics here is that this is the movie Dark Water, but it's the unrated widescreen edition. I had seen the movie before when it first came out. I'd never seen this one before, so it had a little bit of material I hadn't seen. I remember the first time I saw it, I did not know it was based on a Japanese horror movie. Mm-hmm. So my first thought was that it had the feeling, the the whole oppressive atmosphere that you get in The Ring and The Grudge. Right. And obviously it turned out there was good reason for that. But what you don't get that just about every Japanese horror movie or adaptation of has is all the gore. There's very little violence in this movie at all. It's mostly about the atmosphere. And uh, it is very atmospheric. Mm. All of the sounds, all of the lighting, everything sets a mood that is there to not scare you, but to make you feel you know, hopeless or helpless. It just... It's really, it's not dark per se, but it's it's depressing. The atmosphere right. is. So yeah. that's something that isn't easy to pull off. And I liked the movie, so I, I'm going to say that I think they did it well. It can, of course, lead people to you know fall asleep or just get bored and turn it off. I didn't, but I, you know. If you're uh, already tired, maybe this isn't the movie to watch because it's not a fast-paced movie. In, right, right, means. right. And, you know, neither was The Ring or the, or the Grudge. No, this is true. Yeah. And I remember um, thinking it odd, that, I, and I wonder what the, the, the rated version is rated for this because um, those other films were PG-13 um, because right. they and- also didn't have the gore. 
you know. But they do have the shock. Right, you know, right. Things jump out at you. There's almost none of that in this movie. Really? Either. One or two scenes tops. Uh, what this does, though, I, I realized as the movie was ending is that instead of being about fear, mm-hmm. the way almost every horror movie is, it's about the fears of the main characters right. being exploited. Uh, this movie is actually about strength. Mm. Um, you have two main characters, the, the mother and daughter. Right. And they are both in an unpleasant situation that gets worse, but they both find strength to deal with it in their own ways. In the mom's case, it's, well, the movie's been out for several years now, so I'm not too right. worried about spoilers. But I'm still not going to tell you how it ends, because <laughs> it's a good movie and I recommend you watch it. But they really do both find strength to handle the situation. And that's uh, something that you don't always get out of horror movies. I can't call it a happy ending, but it is an ending that, that shows promise and leaves at least some characters hopeful. Nice. I, would you define this movie as a psychological thriller? I think there's a very psychological element to it, and it's not until the very end that you find out for sure whether the situation is genuinely supernatural. So it it is psychological, and the woman is going through all sorts of problems that we find out in this unrated edition have their roots in her childhood. And like many other Japanese horror movies, we have flashbacks to... You know, her own childhood, we see things happening, and then we get the stuff going on now, and she might be a little delusional. There's, there's definitely psychological factors here. Or did you find yourself caring about these characters, basically? Do you think the screenwriter and the director did a good job with that? Oh, definitely. I even cared a lot, more than I expected I would, about the, the minor characters. Um, there's characters who are mostly indifferent and that's all they're really supposed to be bringing to it but you can see nuances in their writing that they weren't just throwaway characters they were put in there to be somebody that makes a difference not just push the story and they all have their own resolutions that uh, for better or for worse they're they're left in new places too all right so um the emotional investment factor was there. Yes, yes it was. So since this is a crossover, let's let's ask you this for your recommendation. Would you buy it, call it a tepid treat, or a shit chain? Wow. <laughs> or would you pirate that sucker? Just <clears throat> Well, of course, I would never recommend pirating anything. <laughs> that would be wrong. But... It's a movie I would watch again. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily buy it, but you know I, I wouldn't just say, "Well, I've seen that one and never go back to it again." Okay. It does star Jennifer Connelly. I'm a big fan of Jennifer Connelly ever since The Labyrinth. Yeah, yeah, me too. You know, I only just watched The Labyrinth like for the first time this year. You shouldn't admit that in public. Yeah, I and I just wanted to see what all the hype was about and. Uh, it, it, there was a lot of hype about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. A good I movie. mean, it was worth the hype. It, it, it lived up to the hype. Yeah. Unlike a lot of movies, uh, they don't really exploit the fact that Jennifer Connelly is very attractive. Mm. They just play her as the 
newly single mother trying to raise a child. No shower and, scenes or no. There, there's nothing <laughs> exploitative about it, right? Which you know, for horror movies, that's quite the rarity. All right. Cool. I, I've heard it's on on Amazon Prime, uh, so I might have to check that out once I once 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 I get my uh, home Wi-Fi back someday. <laughs> I can watch movies at home, not you, me. That's right. You, you're our. That's that's why we keep you here. That's <laughs> all right. Um, well, thank you, for Ivan, for that. And that is all the time we've got. Actually, we've gone a little bit long. But that's okay. Um, so for those who tuned out, <laughs> uh, join us next week. Uh, we'll be talking with author M.H. Norris. Before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, The Peer Company, not Apple, the top choice in communication technology for Nick Teens. And special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music. Thanks to all who listened. Remember to subscribe to and rate our show on iTunes. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Somewhere.